been looking at Matthew chapter 18, the sermon this morning, the next steps to healing. We believe that Jesus has given us, we know Jesus has given us a pattern for pursuing conflict resolution and, and relational healing in the life of the church. We know that uh, we can't live together in community as fallen people, as sinners, and not step on each other's toes along the way, uh, not sin against one another. And so Jesus gives us a pattern. He doesn't leave us in the midst of it, but he tells us how to handle it, how to address it. And so uh, the first couple of steps are really informal. They're really interpersonal between just a few people. If stuff happens out there, he says, you know, church leadership doesn't need to be involved. It's not, you know, you guys can fix it. You guys can handle it. Um, and so let us hear Jesus tell us again and uh, look at the next step, called next step of healing, uh, the next step in the process. If you weren't here last week, I would encourage you over the last couple of weeks to go back and listen to uh, those to get the fuller picture. But <clears throat> we're in Matthew chapter 18. I'm going to go ahead and read verses 15 to 20, but I'm going to spend my time in 16. Hear then the word of God. If your brother sins against you, Go. And tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, then you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen to you, then take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. A tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on the earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on the earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two or three agree on earth about anything, they ask it will be done for them in my Father, by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we again thank you for your word that is living and true. As we bow our heads and bow our hearts and bow our knees in this moment, it is to you. We long to hear you speak. We long for your word to come into our lives in power and truth, that we would not only learn the right ways, but that you would soften our hearts and lead us to follow you in this, that we might be agents of reconciliation and healing in your body, in your family, in your church, to the glory of your name and to the peace and the purity and the health of your church. Help us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was on staff with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship in my uh, 20s, uh, a young lady came to me, a woman in the, a young woman in our fellowship came and asked me if I would go with her uh, to talk to one of the young men in the fellowship uh, that she had been unable to reconcile with. Apparently this guy has, uh, in every situation that they were in together, whether it was in the large group meetings or when they'd go and meet amongst, you know, all the friends and stuff, whenever they were together, he would just treat her really poorly. He would say things and do things to her that would embarrass her in front of other people in public and uh, just... I don't know, had something going on and uh, treated her just embarrassingly poorly. 
she tried to talk to him. She went to him a couple of different times and, uh, and, and asked him about it and, have I offended you and why are you treating me like this? And apparently he continued in those moments to treat her the same way, uh, treat her poorly and uh, not take her seriously, be rude and condescending, uh, and worse, he wouldn't stop. So she came to me. And so we set up an appointment with the three of us. And so with the three of us sitting there, he was willing to do that. The three of us sitting there, she asked him again, have I offended you and why, you know, you're, this is what you're treating me and why are you doing this to me? I don't understand. And he admitted to his behavior. Um, he admitted that he was bitter, that, that he had, did have an offense. He'd taken offense against her. Actually, she had broken up with one of his good friends, his best friend, a number of months before. Um, and he had taken up his friend's offense, or even where his friend wasn't offended, he was offended and, and angry at her and treated her poorly. <clears throat> and he admitted it, and he admitted why that it was, and he repented, and he apologized and said that I won't do it again, and he didn't. You know, I was in the meeting, and it was awkward. It was the first time I'd ever been asked to be that person to go along. It's in my young 20s, and, um, and it was hard. It was one of those things you do because you... Jesus says you should. You know, it was awkward. It was an awkward situation. I only said a few things in the meeting. I kind of gave it context why we're here. There were once or twice I mediated, you know, the, the tone of voice or what was going on. I didn't say much. I really didn't do that much. But my presence uh, checked him, right? Just having a third party there, uh, hearing what he was saying and how he was saying it, checked him. So for the first time, he really listened to her. And he didn't free, feel free to say some of the things that he had said and done in the past. And so, uh, so he repented, and the issue was resolved. Jesus tells us that the Christian life is a community project. He says it, I think, in this text is just one way, one of the things that this just megaphones out, is that, that the Christian life is a community project, and we're to be involved in each other's lives. And the rest of the New Testament seems to bear that out in, in, in all the one another passages and how we're to love one another and confess our sins one to another and bear one another's burdens and uh, all the different ways we're to be in, involved in each other's lives. The Christian life is a personal relationship with Christ, but it's not a private life. It's personal, but it's not private. It's, it's a community it's a family. Jesus says that we need to be involved in each other's spiritual lives to help each other down the path of obedience, to follow Him. It's inevitable that we're going to sin against each other. We're going to let each other down. We're going to hurt each other. We will fail and disappoint each other. And we'll take turns getting stuck in our own sin. We'll, get, we'll take turns getting caught in places that we don't want to be. And the question isn't if it's going to happen, but when it's going to happen. And so the crucial issue in the life of the church is, how are we going to handle it? How are we going to solve it? And as I say, Jesus gives us a pretty clear path forward. And as I read last week, Galatians 6.1, Paul picks up and echoes Jesus' sentiment. And he says, if anyone is caught in any transgression, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, get involved, right? The loving thing to do 
is to seek to help them, to restore them in a spirit of gentleness, not in a spirit of judgment, not in a spirit of so they know what they did, not in a spirit of what's wrong with you, but in a spirit of humbleness and gentleness, knowing that your turn may be next. Well, you'll need a brother to come and help you in a spirit of gentleness for to seek to help each other. We need each other as brothers and sisters. Love demands our involvement. And so Jesus outlines this path of reconciliation and healing. It's a God-given plan for reconciliation. David Platt says this, this passage is speaking of a situation where a brother sins, or a sister, where he sins directly against you, and he doesn't come for forgiveness. And so he tells you, go. Talk to them. Or he is caught in sin, the Galatians 6.1 scenario, or he's caught in sin and he's refusing to turn from it or he's stuck in it. In such situations, love him, love her enough to privately address the sin. Love him enough not to talk to everyone in the world about it. Love him enough not to sit back and watch him wander deeper and deeper into sin. Love him enough to get involved. Go to the person, Jesus says, right? That's verse 15. Go to the person. Have a conversation, right? And it comes as a command. And we talked about that last week, how it comes as a command. It's awkward. It's difficult to go and talk to somebody about their sin or a way that they've hurt you. It's hard. But love them enough and love Jesus enough to obey him, to not stew on it to not bury it, to to not tell other people about it, to not do nothing about it, but to go and to talk to them, to get involved, to, to be an agent of reconciliation, an agent of peace, an agent of healing, because we love the body of Christ like he does. Right, so Jesus' plan is keep short accounts. Something goes on, go deal with it. One-on-one, be proactive, Seek to solve it. Seek to help them. Seek to reconcile with them. Do it early. Do it quickly. And now if you've gone and done this, and that's what we talked about last week, and go listen to all that. If you've done this and you've gone and talked, but they don't listen. Like that young lady that came to me said she had tried multiple times. And the guy wouldn't listen, and he wouldn't stop. Right? And Jesus says if you've gone and they won't listen, he also says you're not done. See, our temptation might be, you know, to say, well, I tried. Right? Now it's on him. But Jesus says, you're not done. Love demands more of us. We're not free to say that. We're, we're called that if he doesn't listen, verse 16, he says, if he, if he doesn't listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Take one or two with you. Right now, it starts, the phrase at the beginning of this, after verse 15, you know, saying, telling us what to do. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. This is the goal. It's always the goal to win our brother, to win our brother, our sister. That's the goal, healing, reconciliation. But at 16 starts, he says, but if he doesn't listen, right? if, he hasn't, if he's not hearing you, he's not willing to hear, if he's refusing to acknowledge what he's done or refusing to acknowledge his sin and to turn away from it, to turn away from whatever it is they're doing. If they refuse to meet with you, if you call him up and say, we really need to sit down, I need to talk to you about this, and he refuses to meet with you. 
after some attempts. And they need to know that you need to go, you need to know that you need to go to the next step. But I want us to see that the only thing that drives the process forward is the lack of repentance. It's not the particular sin, oh, the sin is up here or down here. If it's up here, you go forward. It doesn't matter what the sin is. In fact, Jesus doesn't even tell us what the sin is. He just says if someone sins, whatever it is. What drives it forward is not that it was a big sin or a little sin. What drives it forward was that he wouldn't listen, whatever it is. You know, was what that guy was doing to the girl in InterVarsity, was that, a, was that, you know, is that big enough to drive it on? It doesn't matter how big it was or how bad it was or how far it went. What mattered was that he wouldn't listen. And so we needed to go to a next step. We needed to involve more people. The only thing that moves it forward is this lack of repentance and unwillingness to hear. Three times in two verses he says this, right? Because you get verse 15 where he says to go. If he listens, he's one. 16, he says, but if he does not listen, take one or two along with you. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen, even to the church, then you take the last and final step. But what drives it at every stage is if he, li- if he doesn't listen. And implicit in that, if he does listen at any stage, you've won your brother, you're done. Right? And still at this stage, in stage two, where you bring one or two with you, the church leadership isn't involved. They don't even, they hopefully don't even, best case scenario, we don't even know. Right? And so at this time, it's still a very informal thing between folks. And what drives it forward is their unwillingness to listen. <clears throat> so people aren't moved to the next step or removed from the church or disciplined because of a particular sin, but because they won't listen. Now, what is the Jesus' assumption here? Right? Why is this the driving factor in Jesus' grand plan? for healing in the life of the church and healing in our relationships. What is it that he's assuming in the process and why, if he won't listen, drives it? And for me, the short answer there is just this, that his genuine followers, A, will, will listen to him and do this and follow his pattern, do what he said, but also that his, his assumption is that his genuine followers, that when they become aware of their sin, want to turn away from it. Right? That underlies it. Right? That, that's the, the assumption that if, that if confronted with my sin, that I wouldn't want to live in it. I wouldn't want to be that guy. I wouldn't want to be at odds at Jesus at this point. Right? That Jesus, when confronted with our sin, we would want to turn from our sin and, and follow Jesus. Right? And so what drives it forward is that we're not acting like a Christian who hates their sin and loves their Lord and wants to please him and honor him and be like him, right? What drives it forward is we're not, we're not following him. We're not loving him. We're not obeying him to not listen. There's a loyalty issue here between our sin and our Lord. And a genuine Christian, when confronted with that choice, my sin and my Lord, will repent of their sin and follow their Lord. That's the mark, the heart that is soft, Sensitive to their sin and a desire to please the Lord Jesus. Now, Jonathan Lehman in his little book on church discipline says this, churches should not 
be surprised whenever they're Jesus representing members' sin. And that's what I said. In some ways, it's inevitable. You know, we're, we're going to stumble. We're going to struggle. So we're, we shouldn't be surprised at any level that somebody sinned against me or somebody did. Sometimes we're like, I can't believe it. It's the church, right? And the church shouldn't have to deal with these things. Well, I'm sorry to tell you. The assumption is you will deal with these things. And, you know, so we shouldn't be surprised that, that this happens, but we should be deeply interested and how members respond to that sin. Do they mourn? Do they hunger and thirst for righteousness? The real question is, how will he respond to your rebuke? It's his response to correction that will reveal where his heart truly lies. It's a question of loyalty. Does your heart lie with your sin? Or does your heart lie with your Lord? And when confronted with the choice, what choice do we make? If he listens, you've won your brother. There's repentance, there's reconciliation. The only thing left to do is to help them if they need help. Sometimes if somebody's caught in something, you not only get them to repent, but you might, they might need your help. You know, as often or not, even in my marriage, there's sometimes my wife confronts me with stuff, and I tell her, I am sorry, and I do repent, and I want to be different, but it might take me. I can't promise I won't do it again. I'm going to try not to do it again. My commitment's not to do it again. I don't want to do it again, but there's a very good chance that I might. And if I do, will you have mercy on me? If you tell me, I promise to hear you, and, and I will continue. If you will work with me, I will get better. I want to be better, right? So we come alongside of people. And we help them, not judge them, and not box them out or cut them off. No matter how big or small the sin is, no matter how many times they've done it, if the person asks for forgiveness and for help, we should give it. That's what Jesus does for us, doesn't he? No matter how big or how small or how often, praise be to God. When a person repents, the process stops. The matter is resolved. There's full and free forgiveness. The only unforgivable sin. Often that's a debate. What is, what's, what is it? There's only, in my understanding, in my opinion, I would tell you now, solve that riddle for you. There's one unforgivable sin. Unrepentance. To not repent of it, whatever it is. That's the only unforgivable sin, right? To refuse to part with your sin, that's the only unforgivable sin, is the sin that you live in, the sin you won't repent of, the sin you won't part with, the sin that you love more than your Lord, the sin that the only unforgivable sin is to not turn from your sin and follow Jesus. And so he says, if they do not listen, if they refuse to listen, take one or two with you. Right? Take one or two with you, along with you. And Jesus is saying still, keep the circle small. Right? We saw last week that he said, if someone sins to you, against you, go to him or her between just the two of you alone. Right? The circle is two people. It should be resolved there, kept there. No one else should ever know until you've tried to solve it. And if you do solve it, no one ever needs to know. And if you don't solve it, he says, still keep the circle as small as possible for as long as possible. Bring one or two others, if necessary, and go back and try again. It's not time to start complaining to others. 
He won't listen. It's time to call in reinforcements. It's time to get some help and bring somebody else along, right? Like that young girl brought me along. And sometimes just bringing somebody along changes the whole dynamic enough that they will hear. And they can help. They can offer wisdom, right? And notice he doesn't say bring two witnesses. He says bring one or two others along that in the end everything is established by two witnesses. But at first he simply says bring one or two along. And so I am convinced, and I believe it is correct, that you bring them first of all, not just as witnesses to their bad behavior or something, but you bring them first and foremost to help, right? That they would become part of the reconciliation process. They're there to counsel or to mediate, Bring them to assist you in the conversation, right? We need them to be objective. Sometimes an objective listener can see things that are going on in the dynamic that that because you guys are in it, you can't see. So I would say this. If you ask and you're in this position and you need to bring someone along and you ask them to come, I believe that that person that you ask to come needs to be an objective observer. So what does that mean? It means don't make your case to them ahead of time. Right? It means don't get them, pour out your side of the story and get them on your side and bring them to gang up on the person. Ask someone to meet you there and to objectively observe and to be a part and to mediate as you two try to work it out. Right? That would be, I believe, the, the best case scenario is a fresh set of ears with the presence of others who might hold us accountable I mean, I know this in marriages as often or not. There are things you might say to your husband or say to your wife in the privacy of your home. But if there was a, a, a deacon sitting there in the conversation, I may not be comfortable saying those things. You know what I mean? Just the presence of someone else may check us. So bring someone who's mature and humble and gentle and loving, whose goal is reconciliation, right? It can be a church leader, a deacon or an elder, a small group leader, a ministry leader. It doesn't need to be. But it can be, but find somebody who is humble and gentle and loving enough to be involved. And understand, they're not there to back you up. They're there to hear two sides of a story and to try to help. Situations can be very complicated. And there are two sides to every story. And both sides of the story need to be heard before judgments can be made. If you think that you've heard this person's side of the story and he tells you to come, and so you come knowing and believing their side of the story, then you approach the situation one way. And you may find yourself in an awkward situation when you discover you don't, you've only, there are a lot of things you didn't understand. You're there to reconcile, not to win, not to be proven right, but to hear each other out. I remind you, it's a verse that has come to mean a lot to me in pastoral ministry over 20 years because you can make the mistake a few times before you finally learn there are two sides to every story. Proverbs 18:17 says, the one who states his case first seems right. Whoever tells you their side of the story, especially if they're the offended or the wounded or the hurt party, and they tell you their side of the story, the one who states your case, they're going to seem right to you. You're going to hear their pain. You're going to hear their version of events. You're going to hear what they remember. You're going to hear, and, and it will seem right. You will want to take up. It is a great temptation to want to take up somebody else's offense. You weren't offended. 
You weren't there. Nobody hurt you. You weren't a part of it. You haven't even heard the other side of the story. Oh, but we're so tempted when we hear that first side to, to take up their offense and be angry with them against this person and, or what has been done. But the Scripture warns us that that is unjust. Right? And this is almost like a law court. The one who states his case first seems right. You know, when the prosecution speaks, but let the defense come. And all of a sudden, there are some factors and things that get laid on the table that make you have maybe a reasonable doubt about the guilt of the person, right? Until the other side comes and has a chance to explain. So that is to say, you know, in a situation, at least as you bring the third party, you don't know what you're walking into. Sometimes offense may not have even been given, but offense may have been taken. People choose to take offense. Think of the guy in my story. Offense was taken. Was offense given? No. Right? He, was, he, was, he, he was offended or he was angry or he was bitter. He had taken offense. He was treating someone, but he had not actually, no offense had actually been given. You don't know that until you hear the stories. Sometimes when you're meeting, you're hearing the other side of the story and it sheds new light on the situation and there's explanations and clarifications and reminders and sometimes in your meeting it objectively, objectively confirms your suspicions and there's real sin and there's real need for repentance. But now it's been established by a third party. One or two, the one or two that come with you will become witnesses, either witnesses of the beauty of reconciliation, the beauty of open and honest communication and repentance and forgiveness, and they become witnesses of that. They have the privilege to be present. Or they may become the witnesses of the failure to reconcile. And so they do become witnesses on the tail end. You bring one or two with you, and if they refuse to listen, right, if there's, if there's not reconciliation then every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. They become witnesses of the people's response and attitude of what was said and how it was said. Who was listening and who really wasn't listening? Who copped an attitude and who didn't? Right? And who was soft-hearted and gentle and who wasn't? Right? They become witnesses to how it all went down. Someone besides you can attest to what happened and what didn't happen. And when it comes to, if he doesn't listen, and we go next week and go, if he refuses to listen, tell it to the church, you know, then there is this one or two witnesses. Deuteronomy 19.15 says this, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that has been committed. It is only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. Right? And he says there's a high bar for accusing people of things. There's a high bar. There should be a level of evidence. And that's true whether it's at this level or as a session is trying to deal with something and they get an accusation about something. Are there two or three witnesses? Are there enough credible witnesses to, to establish the something that is being brought? And if there's not, then we shouldn't move forward. It's not necessarily a one-step process. You may bring one or two along and you have a conversation, but it may... It may not be resolved, but it also may not be that there's an absolute refusal. It, it, it might require multiple conversations to get where we need to go. 
As long as a reasonable conversation is happening, the discussion continues, we should not move forward, we should pursue, as long as reconciliation seems possible, we should pursue it and go after them and have those conversations. It's only when someone has dug in their heels, and we're right and you're wrong, and that's it, end of conversation, and we move on. If the witnesses come and they see you know, and they might help us make the decision when to move on. But if they see, you know, you're right, his heels are, it, it, it is true, there's something there, and he's dug in their heels, and they're not willing to move from their position. You may need to move on. So let me just give you a quick list of some applications as we do it. In some ways, it's a very simple step, right? Go to them one-on-one. If they listen, you've won your brother. If he doesn't listen, go bring one or two, right? Bring one or two. If he listens, you've won your brother or your sister. If he doesn't listen, you got to move the process on. Um, let me just give you then some of it as some quick applications and a couple of little deeper ones. A couple of quick ones is simply this. Do not ignore conflict or the danger of sinful behavior. There are peace fakers and there are peacemakers. And the peacemakers shall be called the sons of God and the daughters of God. And peace fakers know and ignore there's conflict and ignore it. Right? They know there are problems, and they don't solve them. And they become then part of the problem if, if uh, either way. So don't be a peace faker. Be a peacemaker. Don't ignore conflict and sinful behavior. Get involved in healthy, humble, biblical ways where we're pursuing reconciliation. Second, if the first attempt fails, don't give up. Don't give up on your brother. Don't give up on your sister. Don't leave them where they are. Go after them. Get help. Follow Jesus' plan. Do what Jesus tells us to do. Third, just a reminder, because I think it is so important in the life of the church, is keep the circle small. Keep it small, right? Two or three more, now we only got three or four people involved. It's a small group. Keep it as small as possible, as long as possible. Solve it with the least possible public exposure, the least possible damage to either party's reputation with other people. When I hear things about you... (laughs) You know, from other people or, you know, how that goes. And then I'm interacting with you. That's always there, isn't it? Like, don't put that in people's heads. If you're the one approached by one person or by a few, right? So now you're on the receiving end, right? If you're the one approached, welcome it. It's not your natural inclination being confronted by people about something. Our natural inclination is what? You know, self-defense. Get defensive. Maybe get angry. Who are you? I don't know what goes on in your heart and mind. Anyway, mine may not be as pure as yours. Sometimes I get defensive, you know, or that. But I've known enough and long enough and understand it enough that I've actually tried to, in, in a, as an act of discipline, if you come to me, I can tell you my desire and my goal is that the first words out of my mouth to you will be, Thank you. Thank you for coming. Thank you for being willing to tell me. And to me, I know it's awkward and I know it's hard. And I thank you for being willing to step out and to say something to me that I know is not, you'd rather be somewhere else right now. Right? I know that, right? If they're there trying to tell you something, these, they're obeying Jesus. And so when people come to you in obedience to Jesus, we need to welcome them. And we need to thank them for doing it. Thank you, and, and for me, there's a genuine thankfulness in there, and a, thank you for giving me the chance to explain. 
I can't tell you how many times. I just wish you'd give me the chance to explain, to tell you what I'm thinking and how I felt it and how I experienced it. Like, give, give me a chance that we, that we could both be heard and have a conversation. Like, thank you for coming. You know, when somebody comes, I'm saying, if that's how you feel, I am so glad you're not out there thinking and feeling that. I'm so glad that you were willing to come and give me the chance to explain or to repent. Thank you for letting me repent and bring healing and not just leave it the way you were feeling it. I know it's hard. Proverbs 9.8 says this, Do not reprove a scoffer. He'll hate you. But reprove a wise man, and he will love you. So if somebody comes to reprove you, you want to be the wise guy, the wise woman? right? You'll love them for it. You'll thank them for it. You'll invite it. My friends, the followers of Jesus want to grow. They want to know. They want to repent of their sin. They don't want to be that guy, that girl. They want to be like Christ. Proverbs 15.31 says this, The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. It is good for you. Whoever ignores instruction despises himself. Right? It is, it is, it is, you do yourself wrong by not listening. The one who listens to reproof gains intelligence. He grow, he learns and he grows. He knows himself better. There's no more important knowledge in this life, my friends, than for you to know yourself. And sometimes we're the last one to really see ourselves. Self-awareness is a great gift. And those who are willing to give it are a treasure, right? Faithful are the wounds of a friend who will tell you. If you're the one going, be humble and be open, right? Don't go just to make your point, to prove yourself right, to win, you know, to, so they know. Or so if you go to tell someone, I said it last week, before you go to anyone, go to God, pray, right? Search your own heart, take the log out of your own eye, before you go to take the speck out of somebody else's, let God show you your sin in it. Be willing. What a beautiful thing is if I've prayed about it enough and there is something between us, but I've actually recognized that I am part of the problem. And I can show up not only just to tell you your sin, but to even begin with but telling you, I know I could have done this better. And I know when I said this, it may have offended you or been hurtful. And so I wanted to tell you I'm sorry. You know, right up front, I'm sorry. I, you know, having done that to say, but I also feel there's something between us. And, you know, there are some things I want to tell you as well and, and to put it out there. But come with the goal of being reconciled, of being willing to listen, to hear a different perspective, to learn some things that may shed light on the situation. Again, you may come away and feel like you have been confirmed and, 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 and objectively that, that, that it is what you thought it was and only that, or you may come away with a totally different perspective and a healed relationship. People who are hurt, right? If you're the one, if your brother sins against you, right? You're the offended party. You're the wounded party. You're, you have been offended and hurt, right? People who are hurt, who are in pain, do not always see clearly. And I, I say it lots of times. That's true of physical pain. It's true of relational pain. And I say it, you know, when people are in chronic pain. 
People in pain do funny things. Things they wouldn't normally do. Be willing. Open, humble. 1 Corinthians 13 says that love believes all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things. If the person repents, right? So if you're the one going, if you're the one being approached, if the person repents, you need to go being prepared to give full and free forgiveness. And if you're not ready to forgive, then you need to spend more time with God so that if, if the opportunity is there, that you are willing and not desiring, longing to, to forgive so that there can be healing and restoration. To be happy. I want to go and be happy that I've won my brother and sister. The best case scenario is that if there is repentance, there is forgiveness, and there is healing. My friends, this is what Jesus offers us. Full, free forgiveness. Right? If we repent and we sin against him, which we do pretty much every day, which is why it's so marvelous that his mercies are new every morning, but he forgives us, right? The, the, the joy of the Christian life that understands the grace of God and what he has done in Christ in the cross, where in his own body he bore our sin on the cross so that every morning, no matter what yesterday was like, every morning I can go and find full and free forgiveness. I don't have to wake up thinking, oh, yesterday was horrible. I wonder if he loves me. I wonder if he's even on my side anymore. I wonder, I wonder. If we say that we have no sin, 1 John 8 and 9, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Don't lie to yourselves. Don't, don't be afraid to hear it. You know, don't be afraid to see it yourself or to be told your sin by others. If we say we have no sin, we're lying to ourselves. The truth isn't in us. We are, so welcome it. And then hate it and repent of it. And if we confess our sins, he's faithful. And he is just on the basis of the justice of the cross where your sin was paid for fully and completely and justice was satisfied. You know, and it, it is finished. If, if we confess, he is faithful and just to offer us a free and full forgiveness and to cleanse us and to let us start over, right? To cleanse us from our unrighteousness. That every day where the mercy is new is a day to start over. This is how our Lord daily loves us and forgives us through the cross. A true Christian is someone who is fully convinced of their own need, of that daily mercy and forgiveness, and who looks to Christ for its full answer. And so let us claim that mercy for ourselves. And let us not withhold it from each other. Who are we when we have been the recipients of such full free grace? That we would withhold it from one another. Let us claim the promise and the mercy for ourselves. And let us be peacemakers, the sons and daughters of our Father. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for the way that you love us, and we thank you for the cross, where our sin was paid for, not in part, but the whole. And there is our forgiveness. There is the mercy. There we find ourselves at peace with you, O oh God, day by day. 
May it, Father, be now the source of peace amongst ourselves. Let the mercy flow. Help us to love one another enough to be peacemakers for the good and the life and the health of your church, but even more for the glory of your name, in which we